Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Mary Shirley, and today we have a beloved figure in compliance circles, Carrie Penman, who is the Chief Risk and Compliance Officer of Navex Global. Carrie, we're so pleased to have you join us today. Please will you tell us about your career and how you got into compliance? Well, thank you, Mary, and thanks so much for inviting me to participate in this uh, podcast. I've long admired it, and I'm really honored to uh, join you today for, for this discussion. So, thank you. Uh, my my career path was an interesting one in six years, and it really was a perfectly logical pathway. I started as a textile scientist by training, and my first job at Westinghouse Electric Corporation was in procurement, and that was supporting the Navy nuclear program. So perfectly logical uh, way to get into compliance. <laughs> But uh, really, when they asked me to, to take on the, the role of the first ethics officer for the company, I really, truly thought they dialed the wrong number. <laughs> um, in, in reality, I think, as I look back, I think there were two main reasons probably why I was selected for the role. And it was the first role for Westinghouse, and it was back in, in 1994. Mm-hmm. where there were not too many uh, folks in this position yet. Mm-hmm. So I think for the first 15 years that I worked at Westinghouse, you know, I probably would have described myself as a mediocre engineer. And I first really worked in, in some of the government contracting uh, aspects. We were uh, a large defense contractor, and so uh, I was familiar with a lot of the government compliance uh, and government contracting requirements. And then really the, the bulk of my first 15 years, I worked in some aspect of environmental health and safety, including uh, leading the corporation's focus on environmental management programs. So compliance in some respects was, was part of my training, although I never really thought about it um, in that way. But the second reason, and I think honestly probably the more important one, is at the time... Um, you know, I had a very strong passion for community service. And so in addition to my day job, I led the Corporate United Way campaign for Westinghouse. And you know, we were the largest employer in Pittsburgh, and our contributions meant uh, a, a great deal to the community and uh, served the Pittsburgh area community um, very significantly. It just so happens at that time in 1993 that I was running the campaign it was an interesting ethics scandal that was going on, and that was mm-hmm. the year of William Aramony. Um, mm-hmm. If you remember him, he was the head of the National United Way, and he was forced out for misuse of funds and flying around mm-hmm. on jets with mm-hmm. his uh, female friends. So at that point, <laughs> you know, the biggest challenge I had was overcoming the skepticism of our employees about whether or not they should contribute to an organization that was abusing their funds. Mm-hmm. So, and then the other piece was, frankly, I felt that our prior campaigns uh, were very glitzy events and that we wasted too much money on these fancy events and lost focus on Mm -hmm. uh, what was, you know, important part of our community. So we 
as a team, focused all of our efforts on the local community. We established days of volunteering and caring, and we actually moved all of our events into Westinghouse cafeterias and ultimately had one of the most successful fundraising seasons ever. And so the point of this is, and, and the key takeaway I hope folks will have, is I spent a lot of time in front of the CEO and the executive team as we were implementing this program. And, and I will say at this time, you know, we had 76,000 employees and that kind of executive face time mm-hmm. wasn't available to most mm-hmm. employees. So I think it was a wonderful opportunity, but it was also something that I did because I wanted to, because I had a passion for it. And I think that experience showed our leadership that I had some critical skills to take on the role. And they were, I would say, strong project management skills executive presence, public speaking, and most importantly, caring about our people. You know, I always say that while we all work in compliance, we're really in the people business Mm -hmm. and that our real objective is to truly reach the hearts and minds of our employees regarding our ethics and values and how we want to be known in the marketplace. So I think that, you know, those, those experiences, uh, you know, were really instrumental. And then honestly, you know, it went from there, uh, meeting so many wonderful ethics and compliance officers as I took on the role that really, you know, launched my love of the field and, and interest in staying in this space. A long answer, Mary, to your question. <laughs> that was really interesting. And I had no idea about that, that background of yours. And it, it leads me to another question, which is, you know, often in compliance, we we see a lot of um, functions being quite common ones in which people end up in compliance from. So legal, internal order, and HR would be, I'd say, three of the most popular, maybe not so much um, from an engineering background. So I'd love to hear about what would your advice be for someone who's coming from perhaps not a traditional compliance background and being invited into the compliance function? And then again, without any disrespect to engineers whatsoever, I would say it's perhaps a role in which you don't necessarily have to be um, a people type of personal function. And so how do you take that shift from those working in perhaps um, a less uh, customer-centric facing role, uh, such as perhaps engineering and someone who's moving into compliance where you're expected to be somewhat more of um, uh, showing your interpersonal skills and even some selling and persuasive skills as well? That's a great question. And, you know, I, one of the reasons why I, I said I was probably a mediocre engineer is because it wasn't really um, where my passion was. I did have, a, mm. you know, an, an expertise for um, organized and, and scientific. And I will tell you that some of the scientific training and background was extremely helpful in thinking through, you know, building onto a project and probably more importantly, in aspects of conducting investigations Mm. because staying very data-driven, very objective, very Mm -hmm. fair, and um, very disciplined, if you will, in that process, I think uh, helped me to become uh, a good investigator because that was really part of the scientific engineering training. So that part was interesting. I I Mm. think that the The reason why I didn't stay in science in the lab is I found out I was missing people. So I think perhaps Mm -hmm. that my original field of study wasn't perhaps the best choice, but it certainly was best prep. I think the other point I'll make about that is I I came from the businesses. So I really was in operations. Mm -hmm. 
And coming from operations and knowing the businesses uh, made it much more, I guess, to have an ability to be empathetic for rolling out of corporate initiatives and the impact that it has on the operations. And it gave me a very uh, strong uh, understanding that, you know, I couldn't just come in and say, we're from corporate and we're here to help you, uh, that it was you know, making sure that I understood the businesses, I knew the businesses, I could speak to the business leaders. I understood that if I rolled a particular project in at a certain time, it was going to put a an, an undue or significant burden on the operations of the business and that I could make reasonable adjustments to our schedule to accommodate theirs and to recognize that, you know, if we were, if we were putting something out, it A, had to be good, and B, it had to matter, and it had to, to be relevant. So I think all of that was, was, in fact, good experience. And, you know, at the time when I was appointed, many of the early ethics officers had come from operations, mm. and they were, in fact, in their last job before retirement. Wow, that's interesting. So there was a, a generation that started around the time I was appointed, and there were a number of other women, actually, mm-hmm. who were... Uh, appointed into these roles as ethics officers, and we were called ethics officers then. Compliance, a lot of compliance was legal, mm. um, but uh, but we had the role of ethics officers, and it was um, interesting, you know, for this particular podcast that there were a number of women who, at that time, I was 36 years old, and mm-hmm. um, and reporting to the CEO of Westinghouse, and that was absolutely unheard of, mm. and they were actually using this particular position for high potential individuals as a developmental assignment. So uh, a whole, a whole bunch of wonderful things came together, but, um, but that's how I got into the field and that's why I stayed because I, I really did find my passion. That's awesome. And I I love the um, exposure angle Um, being in compliance uh, can be as the head of a function, a great way to, to get yourself in front of, some of the key decision makers in your company. So thank you for sharing that perspective. What do you think are some of the differences and similarities of being in risk and compliance for a compliance vendor as opposed to a company in in another industry? I think that's a great question, Mary. And I'm actually asked that a lot uh, about, you know, what are some of the differences, you know, that now that I'm at, at Navex Global. And I would say that there's definitely some differences. Um, but there's also very many similarities. So I'll, I'll start with the differences. And I think mm-hmm. one of the differences is that every employee of Navex Global in some way, shape, or form is thinking about ethics, compliance, and risk management every right. day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, from that perspective, you know, we have a high level of awareness of the importance of this. And I think as well, and I, I try to emphasize this uh, quite a bit, is I speak with our employees in various training sessions and conversations that I have is, you know, I, I think we are held to a higher standard because we are in the ethics and compliance business. And so yeah. I feel very, very strongly that, um, <clears throat> you know, this is an important topic for us to be uh, talking about and thinking about uh, all the time. I also would say um, I'm very lucky because I don't have to do much convincing of our board and our senior management of the need for a program. Um, that's just not an issue. Mm, Again, yeah. <laughs> this is the kind of thing that we talk about all the time and we talk mm. about what it means for our customers mm-hmm. and what it means for us. And uh, here again, we we don't want to be the shoemaker's kid. So we 
have uh, a very strong program ourselves internally. And the other thing that is different, I'm sure, is that I have access to all of our technology and platform systems. Mm -hmm. No charge. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I'm not scrambling for budget for some of the things that um, I know can be helpful and make us more effective and better use our resources because I Mm -hmm. do have access to to the technology. So I suppose that those are some of the differences uh, mm-hmm. you left. <laughs> you know, fighting for budget is, is less mm-hmm. of an issue. I mean, budget mm-hmm. in other areas is always an issue, but, um, but I also have the opportunity then to kind of test and provide feedback um, for the systems our customers use. I think similarities, mm-hmm. in the end, we're still an organization that's mm-hmm. made up of people. And so we deal with the same types of issues as, any other organization, um, our executive team regularly talks about culture. We're talking about managing risks. You know, we're having these conversations uh, all the time, just like I'm sure uh, many of our listeners uh, are having as well. And then, you know, in the last year, Mary, I think you probably know, we completed uh, three acquisitions, and that's a lot, especially right. for yep. an organization of our size. And so mm-hmm. culture is something... Um, in particular, you know, we're, we're definitely focused on. So in the end, we're, while we have, uh, well, I have a good fortune of having people who think about this all day and a great leadership team that thinks about it all day, um, <clears throat> we're still an organization that's made up of people. And I truly believe that we're in the people business, as I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. You know, we can have all the rules and policies and procedures and and whatever, but, you know, it's really the way things get done around here that mm-hmm. impacts how effective we are. So, um, so I think those are probably the main ones, but it's a mm-hmm. great question. I do get asked that a lot. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful. And as, as obvious as it was when you mentioned it, it I, I didn't think of it when I was um, preparing that question for you is that you, you would, of course, have access to all of the, the latest tools that your own company makes. So that's an awesome benefit to have and and not having to convince anyone or do proposals and tenders and so on. That's a a great one. You're very lucky in that respect. Absolutely. Carrie, you've talked about the overlap of operational risk and compliance risk before. What are your thoughts about this convergence? You know, Mary, I think it's long overdue that that this convergence um, is occurring. You know, if we think back to even you know, 1991, the federal sentencing guidelines and all the various, you know, changes since then, risk assessment has actually always been a critical component of good programs. And, you know, the government has long recognized in many of their assessments and in the various enforcement actions that they take and the best practices that that they refer to when they're looking at programs is it needs to be risk-based. And, we we know that we don't have unlimited resources to spend on these initiatives. And we also know that we can't mitigate risk to zero. What we need to do, and I think the most effective programs truly are built on a strong risk assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, but too often, and especially when I was doing a lot more consulting, uh, one of the things I found that a lot of organizations would do a risk assessment and then they would put it on a shelf and maybe there would be an action plan created, but it wasn't always part of the true fiber of the program. It wasn't the driving uh, force behind what we did. And I think 
it makes it harder to, uh, to our earlier discussion, right, convince leadership that we need the resources um, to do certain things to mitigate risk mm. because we haven't done as good of a job articulating what those risks are and why they matter. And I mm-hmm. think it's so easy to get caught up in the day-to-day tactical operations of implementing a program that we could lose sight of some of the strategic role that we play. And that strategic role, in my opinion, is, is the most important one that we play. And I also think, you know, back to, the, to our earlier discussion about visibility and um, executive um, opportunities, you know, to be in front of the executives, that when we are operating at this higher strategic level and speaking the language of the business, right, back to coming from operations, speaking the language of the business and knowing the business and speaking about strategy and what some of these risks mean uh, to the operation and how we can positively influence the business instead of always just being the ones bringing, you know, potentially bad news. wanted to add that I, I really worry with such a heavy focus probably in the last decade, right? We're just starting a new decade. We have slipped almost into the role in some cases of being the box checkers. I think that this convergence that that you've asked about, about the overlap of operational risk and compliance risk, that we have a huge role to play here and that we can make a significant difference uh, in the strategy and the go-forward plans of our businesses by, by speaking the language of risk management as opposed to the language of, of compliance. Just moving uh, along to a, a different topic now completely, uh, I wanted to um, chat about um, some of the best practices um, in hotlines. So the, the NAVEX Global Hotline Benchmarking Report, which is freely available, um, is a really great resource, I think, whether one uses NAVEX Global for their hotline processes or not. And so one of the many reasons that I was excited to have you join us, Kerry, is that um, I wanted to dig deeper than the report and go behind the scenes a little, if you will, to get some insight into best practice aspects of hotline programs that are not so readily available um, and publicly available resources. So will you share with us some of what you perceive as being the common pitfalls that companies fall into when managing a hotline program and how to troubleshoot those situations. Sure, happy to do that. You know, and I, I actually, that, that's back to the scientist in me. That's where I acquired a passion mm-hmm. for understanding hotline data and mm-hmm. how and when employees will report and when they won't report. So I think the first pitfall that we all face, and, and we all know that this isn't the case, but sometimes our challenge to convince leadership of this, that is the belief that no calls are good news. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. So, so how often, right? Do are we asked? So, what is your report volume, and what is good, and what is right, mm-hmm. and what is mm-hmm. bad? And for years, we always said, well, we know one thing: that no calls are not good news, and mm-hmm. we don't know if there are too many. And um, you may have seen some of the research that was done in the last year by George Washington University Professor Kyle Welch, who actually analyzed a. Um, significant amount of the NAVEX global data mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and found that, in fact, the more reports organizations receive, the higher their return on assets, the lower their litigation costs, et cetera. Also, yeah. fewer adverse media. So I think mm-hmm. um, we have a tremendous opportunity to, uh, to finally have some data to share with 
executives that believe we shouldn't be getting reports. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of the other pitfalls include, you know, not having good investigative protocols. Mm-hmm. You know, there's one thing worse than a big problem, and that's a botched investigation. <laughs> yep. And so I think that um, having strong, consistent investigative protocols that um, allow you to do fair and objective investigations are really critical. Mm-hmm. Um, another pitfall I see, and I talk a lot about it, and I just feel like it's a losing argument, but I'm going to try it anyway, um, <laughs> and that is organizations that have decided to not accept or manage HR-related reports. Mm, yeah. And... I, I find that very troubling, and, but there are so many organizations that tell me, and even some of the compliance officers that I speak with, you know, when they're asking uh, for some consultation on their data, and they say, I know it's not right, but as soon as we get an HR-related report, we close the case and forward it directly to HR. And that's not why employees called us. They called mm-hmm. us because they wanted to talk to us. If they wanted to talk mm-hmm. to HR, they could go to HR. Mm-hmm. And we are another resource. And in fact, back to the discussion around culture, that is probably one of the strongest indicators or red flags is that, um, that we have some cultural issues going on when we start to spike some of the HR-related reports. Hmm. And further, I would say, back in my Westinghouse days, I learned that when we started to spike the HR-related reports, we had other problems. Right. We had accounting issues. Mm-hmm. And so these are very important reports. So common pitfall, not accepting or managing HR-related reports via the ethics and compliance team. And mm-hmm. then maybe the last pitfall I will comment on is calling employees whistleblowers. Mm-hmm. I can't stand that word. I think it's a mm-hmm. terrible word. Mm-hmm. Whistleblowers have such a, a negative connotation, and yet these are our employees who we have asked to raise issues and report known or suspected wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. And all the new legislation that's coming out, I know it's all referring to whistleblowers and whistleblower protections. And I think these protections are very important. Um, and, you know, we know in the recent political news, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, whistleblowers. And it's, it's always has a negative connotation. So mm. I think we, again, as leaders in the field, have the opportunity to, to change the, um, the narrative here on the terminology. Yeah, I think um, when I, um, for those of you who don't know, I moved to the United States um, about two and a half years ago and I used the term whistleblower and uh, I realised fairly quickly that in the United States it does have quite negative connotations. And what I would say is that my perception when I was um, working overseas is that I don't think it had the same um, sort of emotion attached to it as it does in the United States. So I found that, in, yeah, it was an interesting cross-border um, difference for me when I, I moved here, and I'm much more conscious now. And so without even thinking, I tend to call, um, in my company, we call it the Compliance Action Line, which is our hotline. But I would, in previous years, it was always the whistleblower hotline, and no one really blinks an eye um, overseas when I say it, but I'm very conscious in the United States of making sure I always use our specific term of the compliance action line. That's fascinating. That's, that's an interesting point. I love learning new things every day. <laughs> well, it, it's, um, and it's good to know that, you know, that um, my caution in the U.S. Um, is, is on track, that, you know, hearing that from you um, means that I'll continue to, 
to, to watch myself when making those references to colleagues in, in this region because it is important. I totally agree with you. We don't want it to have negative connotations um, at all. And that's why I struggle sometimes with um, action line campaigns, which are words such as if you see something, say something, um, because I feel like if you associate your compliance program with a very prominent and high-profile anti-terrorism campaign, um, that also feels kind of negative to me. I think that there are more positive ways in which we can promote speaking up than, than using terms that may not feel so um, inviting. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, I have a little exercise for you next. Please, will you finish this sentence for me? The key to successfully deploying a compliance hotline is? I would say is management commitment and follow through. Mm-hmm. I have I've always said, I think the easiest part of setting up a hotline or a helpline or an action line is turning it on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hard part is what you do when the phone rings right? mm-hmm. or, the, or the web report comes in. And so, you know, we, we earn our reputations for our, our programs. And I actually think the way we respond to uh, reports that come into our programs mm-hmm. is, is the make or break uh, on, on the credibility of our program. Mm-hmm. Employees will, will talk about their experiences that they have with our program. So I think that you know, before, before you deploy it, and I know most organizations have it, but it's something to, to also keep in mind um, as it, even in a mature program, is first of all, I would say transparency in the process and the follow-up. Mm-hmm. People want to know what happens when they call. Who's mm-hmm. going to take the call? Who's going to investigate the call? How much mm-hmm. will you tell me when it's over? Mm-hmm. And, and to share that type of information with employees um, on a regular basis and to make sure that any information related to your, uh, your speak up program includes the information about the process. Mm-hmm. I think next, um, in terms of management commitment and follow through, I would say consistent discipline and accountability. Mm-hmm. Nothing breeds more cynicism mm-hmm. than special rules for special people. Yeah. And so having consistent discipline and holding people accountable at all levels is, I think, a key component for success. Um, I think one third thing I'll mention is uh, to have the ability to overcome some of the ad- objections that I hear from many of my peers that they receive from their legal departments about mm-hmm. publishing sanitized cases. Mm-hmm. We, need, we need to do that. And that's part of transparency and it's, um, and it's part of, you know, helping employees understand that, in fact, people do report and that we do take action when we receive that information. So management, commitment, and follow-through, I would say. Great. Is key. Perfect answer. Thank you. Um, so and when I was in um, the consultancy or vendor world myself, um, one of the um, big things that I worked on was uh, revamping communications campaigns for hotlines. And I've done this uh, in-house as well. And I, I recently was wondering um, what is the, I guess, what is the typical uh, life cycle of a communications campaign for uh, a hotline? So I was wondering, do you have any anecdotal information on how frequently companies typically revamp their communications campaigns for their hotline. And I'm, I'm talking beyond just the small things like uh, including a slide about the hotline in every training deck, for example. 
<clears throat> excuse me, more the big stuff, um, like posters, videos, and so on. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the challenge with any of these communications and, you know, you know it, you're living it even more so um, than I am, you know, things like posters become wallpaper within mm-hmm. a month. Exactly. And I think that constant awareness through a variety of media, whether it be messages from leadership, talking about it in the town halls, um, mentioning it in you know, various communications, newsletters, et cetera. I think, mm-hmm. though, in the end, I do think employees don't listen, mm-hmm. really, mm-hmm. until they need it. Mm-hmm. And so, while I do think, you know, it's important to, to have ongoing awareness and include the discussions, and, you know, having managers and supervisors talk about it as well are, are critical. When management talks about the importance of speaking up, then, and people believe that they mean it, then they will do it. But, you know, I learned a long time ago that you could stand on your head talking about um, <clears throat> about the program and the line and how it works, mm-hmm. but they're really truly not listening until they need it. So mm-hmm. I think the most critical thing to do is to ensure that the information um, that I talked about earlier about the process, how it works, mm-hmm. what happens when they call, mm-hmm. what will tell them, that, you know, you every organization has some sort of a, you know, internal website where they have this information available. And mm-hmm. I would ensure that that is crystal clear mm-hmm. uh, right, right next to the phone number and the, web, the website for reporting. Absolutely. Um, I, I think um, BP used to have um, a, at least uh, a sticker on every single uh, phone in the office with the compliance action line details on it so that you know, really good just-in-time training. Uh, <laughs> exactly. You, you want to call, the number is right there uh, and accessible. And I wanted to touch on um, your wallpaper comment for a moment. I use almost the exact same metaphor. I talk about how it becomes a part of the furniture, your hotline poster. Once it's been up for a while, it blends in and it just becomes a part of the surroundings. And what I'd urge our listeners to do is think for a minute, um, find out if you've not been at your company for very long, when was the last time uh, you had your poster redesigned and put up around the office? Because one of the campaigns that I worked on in consultancy, when the company revamped their poster and put up new ones, they experienced an almost 30% jump in the number of calls that came through their hotline. So it really reinvigorated uh, the message, uh, the availability of compliance and how easy it is to approach Um, the function with a report if you need to. So if you've had your posters up for a very long time and they have become a part of the wallpaper or the furniture, perhaps um, it's a good time to consider whether a revamp is in order. Absolutely. Excellent. Kerry, you and I recently touched upon a phenomenon in conversation where sometimes compliance officers can be the ones who are most afraid to speak up. Now, if we, if we think about it just kind of prima facie, that kind of sounds ridiculous when you consider that we ourselves spend a large portion of our time encouraging others to speak up. But nevertheless, I think it can, in fact, be the case. What are your thoughts on this and, and how can we address it? So I think that that fear is very real. Mm-hmm. And, and interestingly, um, I actually studied this phenomenon with actually another uh, great woman in compliance, mm-hmm. uh, Vicki Sweeney of KPMG. Mm-hmm. And she uh, had worked very hard on implementing uh, a retaliation 
monitoring um, program at KPMG. Mm-hmm. And while she was doing that, and, and I also have a very strong interest in the topic, we did a uh, conference roadshow mm-hmm. where we actually were uh, asking groups of compliance officers to vote a question that in our consultancy we often asked in focus groups with employees, which is, mm-hmm. do you believe that you can raise an issue without fear of retaliation? Good question. And and the question, the data was somewhere like around 40% um, of mm-hmm. employees feared retaliation. 60% mm-hmm. said that they could do it. 40% said no. In mm-hmm. the case of our roadshow, we found it was more than 50% mm-hmm. of compliance officers were fearful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And while it was surprising and, and frankly sad to to see that data, I do think that perhaps we see or hear how mm-hmm. leadership may act mm-hmm. when uh, we tell them about an issue that's been reported or the number of times somebody says, who said that, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that that sort of has, you know, while we've managed those individuals, hopefully, mm-hmm. uh, it sort of reminds us or reinforces in our own minds that it's something we have to be very mindful uh, of in our own practice. So I think fear of retaliation will never go away. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there's a lot more that we can do to, um, to manage fear of retaliation. But I, you're right on point, And I think that compliance officers have to first recognize their, their own concerns in this area. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you for that. Um, and so I wanted to wrap up with you um, on a very nice high note, I hope. What has been your favorite success story in your career so far? Well, I've been very fortunate over 26 years um, to, to have a, uh, a very successful career, and I'm, and I'm so grateful for that. I think there's two specific um, areas that I would say are successful. First, when I left Westinghouse, I went to work for the Ethics Officer Association, which is now the ECI, and I was deputy director. And there I met uh, so many amazing ethics and compliance officers and had the opportunity to share experiences and best practices and listen to the various concerns that they were working through. And I also had a lot of calls from people who were thinking about taking on the role, who, who were just assigned the role. And uh, one person that comes to my mind is uh, now my dear friend, Matt Packman. So I hope he'll forgive me for mentioning his name on the podcast. But <laughs> he actually called the EOA when he was first appointed as ethics officer at MCI WorldCom mm-hmm. after their major scandal. And we talked many times and uh, had the opportunity to connect him with others who were outstanding in this field and helped him to establish a network. And so, you know, I felt the work that I did at the EOA uh, was um, a great uh, success opportunity for me. And then... Sorry, Carrie, you just cut out a bit there. I'm just going to ask you to repeat that one. And Tom, if you could erase the internal conversation here. So Kerry, I think you just cut out with the last full sentence that you said. Um, okay. Can you tell me what the last thing was you heard. Um, I, I think I've distracted myself now with the, um, just about to okay. hit pause. Um, why don't we uh, go from after you stop talking about Matt Hackman? Okay. So, so the really great experience that I had there was to help connect folks and to 
uh, help them um, establish their own networks and mm. and build this incredible network of people who are always so willing to give back to the field uh, and to each other. And uh, for those of you who know Matt, you know he most recently served as the chairman of the board uh, of the ECI. So, you know, just just great opportunities to meet and know so many people. And then I would just say second in my consulting role, I had the opportunity to uh, help several companies mm. um, through some of their settlement processes with the government. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think about one very large multinational company in particular who I received a call late one Sunday uh, from a member of their board of directors who asked us to conduct a culture assessment because they were facing some very significant government scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And so our team went in and conducted a very in-depth assessment, and uh, it unfortunately or fortunately uh, resulted in the removal of the CEO and mm-hmm. a significant portion of the executive team of that company. In the end, uh, it it really, I believe, saved the company. It's now a very highly successful organization, and then the chair of the board called me and he said, you all have made a material and significant difference in the future of this organization. So we felt really, really good about that. Yeah. That was uh, with my advisory services team, not just me. Great. So um, just, um, you know, it's a great field, and, um, and I'm just so grateful to know so many wonderful people and, and to you, Mary, for inviting me to participate in this podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Kerry. We all appreciate you being um, a significant part of the community and and for your um, thought leadership uh, and just being someone that that everyone adores. Thank you for for being around for us. Thank you, Mary. Mm -hmm. So just to end, I wanted to um, discuss a a little bit of research um, in the Harvard Business Review about, about how women undersell their work. And there was a focus on an article that I read recently about how women in life sciences, um, they hold professorships um, and and have the same number of doctoral degrees as men, um, but these women in life sciences also earn less and receive less research funding than men. And so the article talked a little bit about whether some of the differences could be accounted for by the way in which women promote their accomplishments uh, by using positive terms and um, they've quoted novel, unique or unprecedented um, as uh, ways in which women can can better market their research. And uh, it was found that women do use fewer of these positive adjectives uh, in their research articles. So that seems to influence um, the amount of attention that their articles receive. So as a tip for listeners, I wanted to ask you to consider whether you could think about adding a little term um, to maybe a LinkedIn post that you share of something that you've written, some of your own thought leadership, um, sharing things with your management team. And so to end this episode, uh, Lisa Fine and I would like to thank you for listening to our unprecedented, the very first of its class in uh, having a podcast on women in compliance. Thank you for for listening in and all of your support. Have a great rest of your week ahead. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.